Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's one of those passages that you read and you say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're like, thanks be to God. The Bible has some really uncomfortable things to say to those who are wealthy. Really uncomfortable over and over again. The Bible is, without a doubt, harder on the greedy than on the adulterous. Jesus teaches on greed ten times more than he teaches on adultery, yet so many churches seem to get that backwards, do they not? Where we talk about sexuality ten times more often than we talk about greed. And why is that? Well, I'll give you a good reason why. Pastors are not afraid of offending the broken as much as we are afraid of offending the wealthy. It's just the reality that money makes the world go round. This passage should hit us in 21st century America like a blow to the middle of our face, right in the noggin, right in the nose, right in the kisser. That's how this should feel. It's an uncomfortable passage, but it wasn't meant to be taken lightly. It wasn't meant to be a comfortable passage. And sometimes when we get to Scripture, we get to an uncomfortable passage, and we just have to say, okay, that makes me feel uncomfortable. What do I do with that? In 21st century America, I've heard it said, and I'm, I couldn't find the statistics to prove this was true, but it sounds, you know, it, it meets the, the sound standard to me, that if you make over $34,000 in 21st century America, that you're in the top 1% of the world's income. And so when he says... Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Not many of us escape that. Not many of us escape that. We as a society have bought into a false gospel. And that false gospel is the American dream. It's invaded every corner of the American life. Not a single soul in here is immune to this false gospel, which is, if I have more things, I will be happier. If I have more things, I will be happier. More salary, more house, more fashionable clothing, more Scandinavian furniture, more alcohol, more houseplants, whatever it might be. The French sociologist, Jean Baudrillard, sorry, that takes a little bit of thinking for me. I don't speak French. That's spelled like you would never say it that way, uh, as all French words are spelled. 
He says this, atheism has, repli- has replaced cultural Christianity. Atheism has not replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. Karl Marx says that, the relig- that religion is the opium for the people. But if shopping has become your new religion, then I guess Amazon is your new opium. With that in mind, let's consider, uh, for example, the world's problems, the world's solutions to our problems. A couple of years ago, there was a worldwide pandemic. People were experiencing, uh, and there is a worldwide pandemic, but people were experiencing depression, loneliness, hardship at a rate higher than ever recorded in our society. And at a time when Every American needed to be examining their spiritual relationships. They needed to be examining who they are and finding deep solutions to their deep problems. How does the government deal with our problems, but sends a large sum of money to every, almost every American household? Not just to those who need it, not just to the unemployed, not just to the poor, but everyone other than the uber-wealthy, for the most part, gets this check, not just to help you through the times, but to serve as your opium, to serve as the thing that will bring you a little bit of happiness. They're not trying to address the poverty issues. They're trying to address the morale issues of Americans. For American Christians, wealth, and happiness have become far too correlated. Our lives, friends, are not immune from the American dream. In fact, for most American Christians, we're far more American than we are Christian. And that is not the way it's meant to be. When you look at Christianity around the world, Christianity around the world is a world is a religion that thrives on the fringes. It thrives among those who are oppressed. It thrives among those who are poor. We have gotten it mixed up. And so we need the words of James reminding us of the dangers of wealth, reminding us of the corrosive effect of the love of money on our souls. And so as we go through this passage, let it serve as a smelling salt to wake you up from a stupor that the American dream has caused. Now, disclaimer time. I almost don't want to give a disclaimer because James doesn't give a disclaimer. But if I don't give a disclaimer, I'll get a bunch of emails. And so, disclaimer over emails. Let's go that way. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be wealthy. The scripture doesn't condemn you for wealth for wealth's sake. It's not inherently sinful to be wealthy. It is how you view your money and how you use your money that is the issue. It is how you view your money and how you use your money that is the issue. And so while it's not wrong to be wealthy, and there are many wealthy examples in Scripture, righteous people following Christ, following God who are wealthy, who use their wealth in a good way, I will say this without a shadow of a doubt, that while it's not 
it actually impossible to follow God and be wealthy? Being wealthy makes it a lot harder to follow Jesus, period. It makes it a lot harder to follow Jesus. Let me say that the conversely. Being wealthy makes it a lot easier to go to hell. That's pretty clear in the scriptures. But the disclaimer is there that it's not wrong to have wealth. And so that's what James is critiquing today. He says that the problem isn't the wealth, but the problem is this. And this is the whole point of the passage. The problem is when your wealth replaces your gospel. When your wealth becomes your good news, when your wealth becomes your security, when your wealth becomes your joy, when your wealth becomes your comfort, we have a problem. Because it's replaced God and it's become your functional God. And friends, I don't want to just punch you with this over and over again. I want to offer you something better and bring you back to this good news that there's a better comfort. There's a better security. There's a better joy. And that money doesn't do it all. I'm offering you something even better. Let's walk through the text together. He starts with, come now. Uh, You know, he said this last time too. He said this two weeks ago when we were going through the last passage. Come now. And it's kind of like our version of saying, like, listen up. Or as Nani puts it, look it. And it's after Nani says, look it, you listen to everything she has to say and you just don't argue. That's, that's the end of the story. And he says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I can just hear some of you saying like, you know, I don't really like James very much. I like Jesus. Jesus is cool. He's chill. He's peaceful. Jesus. But woe to you who are rich. Luke 6, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It doesn't seem like Jesus and James are too far off. They're cut from the same cloth, you might say. They are brothers. What James and Jesus are teaching is this. If you live your life with this life only in mind, this life will be your reward. If you, live this, if you live your life with this life only in mind, this life will be your reward. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, aim at heaven and get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you get neither. The way you spend your money reflects the, what you think about eternity. And he's basically saying there's a hypothetical here. If you are rich, and this life is all that there is, why not exploit your workers? Why not? If this life is all that there is, you got to get everything you can out of this life, why not exploit your your workers? Why not live in luxury and and self-indulgence? But friends, wealth is not the problem. It's how the wealth is used and what it does to the heart. And wealth oftentimes gives us the illusion that we do not need God. That's why James says, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's talking about these miseries. What's he talking about? He's talking about hell. 
And we can have a lot of discussions about hell. If you want to talk about hell, I'd love to talk about hell. I'd love to give, give you a book. It's called the Bible. No, I, I, another book um, that talks about hell. But you might say, why is wealth so associated with hell? Why is he associating it so closely with hell? There's all kinds of sins. Why is this one associated? Well, friends, there is not one particular sin that is more likely to send you to hell than another. But there is one thing that is guaranteed to send you to hell, and it's self-sufficiency. It's believing you don't need God and basically serving as your own God. It's denying your need for God. And that's why C.S. Lewis says that the gates to hell are actually locked from the inside. He says that the people in hell, they don't actually want to be with God because they think they are their own God. They don't need God. They're self-sufficient. And this is what wealth does to us. It makes us have the illusion that we do not need God and we don't need anyone else. It gives us the illusion that our lives are under control, that we have power over them. We spend so much of our time pursuing wealth in this life while true joy, the joy you've always wanted, that money seems to promise, this joy is available to each and every one of us today. You don't have to climb a corporate ladder for true joy. It's fully available right where you are through Christ. And so as we walk through the rest of this passage, I want to offer up this alternative as we go through it. Three different ways that money serves as a replacement for God and three different ways that Jesus is better. So three different ways that money serves as a replacement for God. Number one, wealth tempts us to hoard things so that our future is secure. But the gospel teaches us that our future is only secure in Christ. Wealth teaches us to hoard things so that our future feels secure, but the gospel teaches us that our future is only secure in Christ. Listen to James. He says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James is saying, all your wealth, your bank account, your checking account, it's got mold growing on it. He says that your, this is actually kind of funny, he says that your, your um, silver and gold have corroded. This is the same word that we would use for rusted. If you know anything about silver and gold, which I did not, I learned this as I was studying this. Silver and gold don't rust. Who knew? I didn't know that. Lots of you probably knew that. Um, But they don't rust. And so for him, he's saying these things that are valuable here in life, they're worthless. They're rusting. They're not real. That's basically what he's saying. It's not real silver and gold. It's rusted silver and gold. It must not be real. And there's this temptation that says, if I just hoard more things, if I just pile up the silver and gold, if I just pile up the clothing, that my future will be secure, that I'll be okay. That's all I need. I just need a little bit more. And honestly, it's a way to manage anxiety. I see this in my own life. 
I am more of a hoarder than a spender, and I manage our uh, checking account, which isn't always the, the best thing for a hoarder to do. And so every Friday, um, I sit down with, you need a budget. Uh, I could give a commercial right now for you need a budget. Um, that's, a, that's an app uh, that you can download onto your phone or your computer. It costs a little bit, but it saves you a lot more, and it's a good way to manage your money. Anyways, um, I sit down with you need a budget, and, or YNAB for those who are with it, um, and I categorize everything that we've spent. I give everything a category, everything a job. I give every dollar that comes in a job to say, hey, this is paying for this. And without a doubt, three Fridays out of four, about 10 minutes into this process, I call Megan in. I'm like, Megan, you spent $7 at Diesel Cafe on a coffee. What could make coffee so expensive? There's a little gold crust on top. What's going on here? And she says, Fletcher, we've been married for 12 years. We've had this conversation 400 times. We have enough money. It's okay. You're anxious. She knows me. She knows me. And then, one, and then the next week, she doesn't buy one. And then the next two weeks, she does, and we have the conversation again. I'm tempted to hoard wealth so that my future will feel secure, but more than that, so that my future will feel under control. I feel like things are out of control for me when I'm not hoarding, when I'm not holding on tight. But when I do hoard wealth, it becomes my functional savior. It becomes the, look, the thing I'm looking to to tell me that my future is going to be okay, that we're going to be able to do the things that we have planned, make the purchases that we want to make. It's the thing that I trust for security. And friends, the reality is, and I need to be reminded of this, no matter how well I manage my budget, I am not in control of my budget. I am not in control of my money. Something could happen tomorrow. In fact, it almost happened this week and it freaked me out. I, got up in the middle of the night and my refrigerator was making a, a terrible sound. And we're at that point in life right now where Megan's a grad student and like a broken refrigerator could almost put, put us under, okay? It's like, oh no, not the fridge. And then it stopped making the noise and I went back to bed and I haven't thought about it until just now. I am not in control of my wealth, but someone better actually is. And that's the good news, that when we trust in Christ, our cups run over. It's not only that he gives us everything that we need, but he gives us more than what we need. Our cups run over, and we shall not want. He's anointed our head with oil. That's, that's an ancient time saying of, like, he's given you super abundance. And he will always care for you. Jesus told a powerful parable. In Luke 12, he says this. He said, the land of a rich man, this is a Jesus speaking, a parable. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and 
There I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want you to see that the rich fool here is doing something that's completely reasonable to most of us. If you've been around uh, City on a Hill for a long time, you've heard this nice little illustration. We had someone who joined our church uh, many years ago named John Cortinez, who uh, was a student at Harvard Business School. And uh, at that point, I think he writes in his book, he was making like over $300,000, some, some ungodly amount of money um, with the, his job. Um, that's a, a phrase of endearment. Um, and uh, he uh, went to Harvard Business School. His company provided for him to go. And while he was at Harvard Business School, he took a theology class, and his eyes were opened to what Jesus taught on money. And so he spent the past several years working for an organization that just goes around to meet with super wealthy people to try to convince them to be more generous. And uh, he's given up his riches, but he took the, he wrote a book called God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. And he retells that parable in modern terms, and he says this, Jesus said a parable saying, the stock options belonging to a manager vested after a major run-up in share price. And he thought for himself, what shall I do? For I already have enough saved to send my kids to college, my house is paid off, and I already max out my 401k every year. And he said, I will do this. I will open an investment account and create a passive income portfolio. And I will exercise my options and put the money there. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have a big enough portfolio to be financially independent, retire early, plan some vacations, play golf. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the portfolio you've built, what use will it be to you then? So is the one who endlessly builds his net worth and is not rich toward God. Wealth tempts us to place our security in the here and now. But the gospel teaches us that our security is only found in Christ. When we trust in God, our eternal future is completely secure and money cannot buy that. Number two, wealth teaches us to use and oppress others for personal gain. Wealth teaches us to use and oppress others for personal gain. The gospel teaches us to lay down our lives and serve others as Christ did for us. Listen to what James says, verse 4, chapter 5. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I have no way of explaining how slavery were, was perpetuated in this country by people who claim to be Christians while this verse ex exists completely contradictory, must have been completely ignored, no idea. Most of us don't have employees, and those 
who, of us who do have employees probably treat our employees fairly. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that if you have employees, you'd probably treat them fairly. We usually compensate them fairly, but I still think that we can apply this. Because sometimes, like, the nicer the restaurant is, the more tempted you are to treat the waitstaff like trash. Because you have a higher expectation, but they become subhuman to you. And you might not be their boss, but you are giving them money for a service that's being provided. And so, how do you treat those in the service industry? Are you kind, compassionate, patient, and gentle? Or do you hold back your tip as the cries of the servers reach the ears of the Lord of hosts? And another way that you can apply it is a much more challenging one, uh, one. and it's one that I don't even really want to mention because it's like one of those that's like, what do you do with that? But in a global economy, we just don't know where our things are made, how our things are made, how our clothing is made, how our devices are made. I've seen statistics on some of this. We have no idea if the people who made those things were being paid fairly or not. One out of six people in the world are in the garment industry. Of those one out of six people in the garment industry, 80% of them were women, and only 2% make a living wage. What do you do with that? I think it's something that's good for us to think about and consider. I don't know if I have next, next steps for us. If it means that we buy less or buy more ethically made things, maybe. It's hard to know what you do with these large systemic problems, how you can handle them individually. But it's at least something that we have to consider. When you have m money, you are tempted to treat others as subhuman. But Jesus, who was God and had every right to treat us as lesser, never did. He never treated us as lesser. But he lifted us up and he laid down his life for us. And so we're called to lay down our lives in the same way. And the third and final way that wealth replaces the gospel is wealth tempts us to live in luxury and self-indulgence. The gospel teaches us to deny ourselves and give generously. Wealth teaches us to live in luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 5. You have lived in earth on, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. Here's what he's saying. Wealth will never satisfy. No matter how much luxury you have, it will never be enough. Ten years ago, there was a study done by a couple of professors at Princeton. And what they did through a series of like 450,000 surveys is they tried to find the correlation, the actual correlation between wealth and happiness. And what they found was a little bit shocking. What they found is that there is actually a number where people start to feel more happy. And that number was around $75,000. But then the law of diminishing returns kicks in and everything above that didn't seem to really matter. 
And I think that one way that we can interpret what they're saying is that the American dream is the American lie, that more wealth does not always make you more happy. But we can interpret it also this way, that poverty is really hard. That being poor is really hard, but wealth does not make you happy. Wealth will not satisfy. No amount of luxury or self-indulgence will ever be enough. Because the gospel teaches us something that wealth can never teach us. And it's contentment. Compare the words of Jesus to the words of John D. Rockefeller. You've heard this one before when he's asked, how much is enough? And he says, just a little more. When Paul is asked, how much is enough? Here's what he said. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we're going to take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Rockefeller says just a little bit more. Paul says, do I have food and clothes? I'm good. What could empower him to live with just food and clothes, something that most of us have at home? Nothing but the gospel. Because the gospel turns us from self-indulgence to generous people. The gospel teaches us that God is infinitely wealthy. That he owns the entire universe. He owns everything. But yet, he is immensely generous with us. He delights to lavish the wealth of his grace upon us. He lavishes his grace and his kindness. He shares abundantly. We get to enjoy him. Our God is not a cruel God, demanding our service, but not paying us fairly. He's a, he doesn't relate to us like a slave owner. He relates to us like a generous father. Think the parable of the prodigal son. When the son had gone and spent foolishly, the father doesn't, come, doesn't judge him when he comes back saying, I told you so. But he welcomes him with open arms and loves him, and shares, and says, kill the fattened calf. This passage says that we're fattening our own hearts for the day of slaughter. But God says, kill the fattened calf, my son has come home. Our God is not a glory hoarder. Many people accuse God of being a glory hoarder, like, like he's just a grumpy dude upstairs who needs our praises for his own ego. That is not the Christian idea of who God is. It never has been and it never will be. That is not who God is. The Christian idea of God is triune. That means from eternity past, God the Father has been sharing his glory with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And they've been moving in this dance-like sequence, showing one another off, glorifying each other, praising one another, throughout eternity past, and they will into entire eternity future. And when you trust in Christ, what you get to do is step into the dance. Through your union with Christ, you receive part of that glory sharing that God has. He's not just this, up, this guy up there saying, hey, give me my due. He's saying, let me lavish my grace upon you. 
Our God did not come to earth and live in self-indulgence. Though we did not do anything to deserve it, he could have come down and been the most self-indulgent king ever, but yet he came of lowly means, was born in a manger, chose poverty, because he knew the way to real riches. Christ stepped out of his position of wealth and authority and stepped into our lowly position, laying down his life for us, taking on our sin, and giving us the right to be called children of God. Friends, because God is generous with you, you can let go of this false God, which is wealth, that will not satisfy, that will not secure, that will not comfort. It will for a minute, but it will not last. Money will not provide what we're looking for. Friends, we have to kill the love of money in our hearts. We just have to kill it. We have to say it's over. You know, this relationship between me and you, dollar, it's, it's over. Okay, I'm, I'm breaking up with you here. Not saying you can't ever use money. You have to. It's a necessity. Which is one of those beautiful things where it's like, I, I can't, I still have to be around this thing. I can't just like say, no, never. But some of us need to admit our addiction to the things that money provides and the grip it has on our hearts. The only way for you to kill your love for money, though, you can't just say, I'm done. I'm over with love, the money. There's plenty of people that have tried to do that, but it just turns them into a different kind of monster. You have to delight in God more than you delight in money. Because a delight in God will replace your love for money. And so, look, friends, I just have a few practical next steps for us. I'm going to try to give you something practical to work with based upon what James is teaching here. How do we, who are rich, not live in such a way to where we deserve what James is saying here? How do we delight in Christ more? How do we loosen the grip of money on our hearts? A few things. One, uh, choose to live below your means. There's this thing, lifestyle creep, where, you know, you, you, you start off one place and you, you just keep on creeping a little bit and a little bit. I've been subject to this. My wife and I talk about this all the time. The way that our life has crept over the years, fight against that and choose to live below your means. And when you choose to live below your means, it will allow you to give away more than you think you actually need to. You know, Jesus had a name for those who gave away exactly what they needed to, which was like 10%, and it was Pharisee. The scriptures tell us that we give self-sacrificially. I'm not just saying to the church, I'm just saying generosity in general. Think about who you give to, how much you give away, how you care for others, with what God has given to you, and give away more than what is required of you. That's one way to loosen the grip of money on it. And then choose to live simply and consciously. Think about the things you buy. All those things, even though they're far from those who made it, were made by a person somewhere. 
And so think about the things that you buy. Friends, if I haven't made it clear, I am a work in progress on this. I grew up really poor, uh, like really poor. Uh, I grew up in the most poor area of the country. We lived in government housing. It's not easy for me to think about the way that my kids are growing up in relative wealth and ease. I resonate with the disciples who after they hear Jesus teach on money, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. And the disciples go, what? what, what? Who's getting into heaven? That's how I feel, guys. When I preach on this, I'm like, I'm not worthy. Like the, the hold that money has on my heart is too much. And I love Jesus' response because he's not hard with them. He doesn't just say, repent, give away more. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. When Jesus said all things are possible with God, the thing that he was thinking was the most impossible was wealthy people getting to heaven. It's possible. Friends, draw near to him. He will draw near to you. Scripturally speaking, a wealthy person experiencing the loving embrace of Jesus is a true miracle. And the love of Christ is infinitely more satisfying than the comfort of wealth. The love of Christ is infinitely more satisfying than the love, than the comfort of wealth. Let's be reminded of this miracle that God gives us through a sacred meal. Father, we, we come to you as uh, people who numb ourselves far too often with the good that wealth provides. And we pray that you will forgive us, and we pray that you will receive us, and that you will help us to delight ourselves in you more than anything else. That you will remind us of your generosity, of your kindness, of the joy that comes and being a part of the dance, that you shine glory on the other members of the Trinity and that we get to share in that. And so Christ, we pray that as we receive this meal, that our hearts will be filled with your grace and your kindness. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. In Christ's name we pray.